continuing our study in the book of Genesis in chapter 37. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you have them, if you don't have a Bible, as always, we would love to give you one at the info bar. I have uh, titled this message, Family Dysfunction Redeemed, as that was the common theme shared by both chapters 37 and 38, which I had originally planned to preach today, but as usual, as I dug a little deeper into chapter 37, it proved to have more than enough meat to keep us busy this morning, and so we're just going to have to cover chapter 38 in two weeks from now after serve week, and I do promise that we will get all the way through Genesis, God willing, sometime before the end of the year. Uh, it, it is the second longest book of the Bible, after all, so you can give me some, some grace. Uh, I don't want to shortchange you on any of the richness that Genesis has for us. So this morning, we're going to be introduced in chapter 37 to our final major patriarch of the book, and that is Joseph. And the events of Joseph's life will dominate the remaining 14 chapters of Genesis. But the overarching point, the big message for this morning, and really for both chapters 37 and 38, is that simply every family is flawed, but never beyond God's ability to redeem the brokenness. I came from what used to be called a broken family, although that label is no longer uh, politically correct. But my parents were divorced, and that was a bit concerning for Polly's parents. When we uh, got engaged, they rightfully questioned what kind of marriage had been modeled for me, recognized that children of divorce are statistically more likely to get divorced themselves. Uh, but after nearly 14 years of marriage now, I am happy to report that not only are Polly and I uh, still together, praise God, but uh, I've actually discovered that her family is just as screwed up as mine is, <laughs> just in different ways. That, as my father-in-law himself likes to say, all families are insane. Some are just a little better at hiding their dysfunctionality. But we all come from broken families. Because every family has been broken in various ways, to varying degrees, by the effects of sin. Every marriage is a relationship between two sinners. Every parenting scenario is really involving one or more sinners, trying to raise one or more other sinners. And we have observed all throughout our study of Genesis just how big of a problem sin is. This morning we're going to see that when you put multiple sinners together under the same roof, the problems don't just get added, they get multiplied. And as we examine the first of these two examples of broken families here in chapter 37, I want to highlight for you the first 10 of those 15 bullet points you see in your bulletin there, 15 different ways that a family can be broken, 15 different types of dysfunctions, 15 sins that will tear a family apart. Whether you are married, single, or divorced, whether you live under the same roof or not, whatever your family looks like, we're all a part of one, maybe a few different types 
of families, your nuclear family, your family of origin, your extended family, including your in-laws. If nothing else, you're a part of this church family. And all these principles we're going to pull out this morning apply every bit as much in the church family setting as well. And so I hope this sermon will prove immensely practical for you. But the biggest message of the morning that we can't lose sight of, if we remember Genesis 37 in its wider biblical context, is that no matter how dysfunctional, no matter how broken, no matter how screwed up your family may be, it is never beyond God's ability to redeem, to bring good out of that brokenness, to bring beauty out of the ashes. If God did that with these two families that we're going to examine the next three weeks, both Jacob's this week and Judah's in chapter 38, two Sundays from now, God can certainly do it with yours, because they're about as screwed up as you can get. So let's pray as we open God's word together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would now open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to experience, soften our hearts to receive the message of your word, what you would speak into our hearts this morning through your word. We want to be not just hearers, but doers of your word. As we get practical this morning, as we look at the effects of sin on us individually and also as, as families help us to, to feel the weight to, to personalize this, not to point fingers at Jacob and Joseph and, or, or other family members, but to, to look in the mirror this morning, to examine our own hearts, and to prayerfully seek to confess and repent any sin that we might find to give it to you and to trust you to do what only you can do to forgive us of sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Father, we thank you that we serve a redemptive God who redeems brokenness, who changes hard hearts, who saves sinners. Would you do that again this morning for our good and your glory we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. As I said, we are beginning the final act in the Genesis drama, if you will. Act 1 described our prehistoric origins, you remember, in chapters 1 through 11. Act 2 followed mostly the life of Father Abraham in chapters 12 through 25. His son Isaac uh, was featured in just a brief interlude in chapter 26, while chapters 27 through 36 primarily centered on the life of Isaac's son, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, and now we're ready for the closing act for Jacob's son, Joseph. Chapter 37 opens then with these two verses of transition. We hear Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when he was 17, and let's pause right there, because this should immediately tip us off that this is a dysfunctional family. The Bible includes dozens of lists of genealogies of family trees, 
all throughout, most of them introduced with this exact same phrasing. These are the generations of Adam, of Abraham, of David, of Jesus. But typically, a biblical genealogy will begin with the person's eldest son or child and then continue on down through their line in chronological order. Now let me quiz you and see if you've been paying attention the past few weeks. How many sons did Jacob have? Twelve. At this point, it's a little unclear. We've heard uh, in chapter 35 of Benjamin being born, but he doesn't show up in this uh, scene, so it's a little unclear. But we know that Jacob has 12 sons. And which number in the birth order was Joseph? Eleven. Second to last. Benjamin was the last. So Joseph is number 11 of 12. But here in verse 2, we read, these are the generations of Jacob, and then we're immediately introduced, not to Reuben, not to Simeon or Levi, Judah, to Joseph. It's almost like the story just skips right over his older ten brothers, and that's because Joseph's father, Israel, had essentially done just that, skipped right over them. We read on, we discover Joseph being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. Not only was Joseph the son of Israel's old age, but he was also the firstborn of Israel's favorite wife, Rachel. And so the first kind of dysfunction that we find here that will tear a family apart is the sin of favoritism. If you want to ensure that your kids hate each other, just buy one of them an amazing Technicolor dream coat for Christmas and put coal in all the other stockings. This is a terrible way to parent right out of the gate by Jacob. And of all people, Jacob should have known better and have, should have sought to avoid the devastating effects of favoritism in parenting. After all, he was his mother's favorite, while his brother Esau was his father Isaac's favorite, and that favoritism literally ripped his family of origin in two, who become the Israelites and the Edomites, go their separate ways. But as so often and tragically is the case, in family systems, instead of learning from his parents' mistakes, Jacob is doomed to repeat them. The Bible explicitly bans favoritism, both within families particularly. Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 through 17, seems to have been written specifically because of Jacob. God forbids a father from showing partiality to the son of his favorite wife. But Scripture also opposes favoritism more generally as well. James 2.1 instructs us to show no partiality, not just within your family, but in general, show no partiality because Romans 2.11, God shows no partiality. God doesn't play favorites with his children, and so we shouldn't either. But how many families go astray on this point? Show of hands, we'll just take a quick poll. How many of you believe that your parents had favorites in the family growing up? Most of us. Now, wait, wait, wait. I'm curious, how many of you believe you were the favorite? 
Less, less than half, okay? We, we've got the sin. It's, it's a good thing. The church is not a museum for the righteous. You know, we're a hospital for the broken. So we got all the, the black sheep here. Some of our uh, intergenerational families here, the Mitchells and Murrays and the Smiths and Schweikarts, they're looking around, you know. Who, was I the favorite? Yeah, so. How many parents would be, you don't have to raise your hand for this one, but how many of us as parents would be honest enough to admit, yeah, you know, I think I showed some favoritism in my in my parenting. It's never too late to confess and repent and ask for forgiveness. You know, it's true that each of our kids are different, and so we may parent them differently, but those differences should never amount to or be perceived as favoritism. If they are, then your family is in for a world of dysfunction. Sin number two, slander. We hear in verse two, if Jacob's favoritism wasn't already a reason enough for the older brothers to hate Joseph, Joseph himself gives them another reason by bringing a bad report about them to their father. Joseph is supposed to be tending the flocks with his brothers, verse 2, but instead he takes it upon himself to report back to daddy on how poorly everyone else is shepherding the sheep. He tattles on them. That's what it is, plain and simple. And we all know the saying, snitches get stitches, right? And so Joseph kind of just gets what he deserves later in this story. Nobody likes a tattletale. But we can broaden this principle, I think, to include or to exclude all slander, both within the family and otherwise. Slander is defined as a malicious, false, or defamatory statement or report. It's essentially talking bad about someone else. Gossip, then, is a type of slander. Gossip is talking bad about someone specifically behind their back. And the Bible is full of warnings against both slander and gossip. God warns in Psalm 101, verse 5, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. How much more so one's own family? Titus 3.2 exhorts us to speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Proverbs 16, 28 cautions, a dishonest person spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. We need to ask ourselves, do my words about not just my family, but everyone in my circle of influence, do my words, do they speak life or do they spread strife? Do my words build up or do they tear down? Do they promote unity, or do they separate and spark division? Few things have the potential to splinter a family worse than slander and backbiting. Because number three, both slander and favoritism provoke anger. We hear in verse four, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. While anger is not categorically 
outlawed in God's word. Even Jesus himself got mad with righteous anger at the Pharisees and at the temple desecrators. Scripture does warn us against the anger of man, which does not produce the righteousness of God, James 1.20. It does warn us, therefore, to be slow to anger, James 1.19. Psalm 37.8 is even more unequivocal. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. It tends only to evil. That is certainly true of Joseph's brother's anger here. It leads them to hate, to sell, to try and erase all memory of Joseph. Jesus warned that everyone who is angry with his brother, who hates his brother, will be liable to judgment. Again, I won't ask for a show of hands on this one, but how many of us are dealing with unresolved anger in one or more of our family relationships? I imagine all of us at some point have dealt with anger within the family. Almost seems like an inevitability. But as Christians, we know that it doesn't have to be from our end of the relationship. You know, relationships are a two-way street. We can't control what someone else gives back to us. You can't control if someone else is angry at you or not. You can certainly help or hurt the situation. And we will all almost inevitably mess up and give others a reason to get mad at us from time to time. But at the end of the day, whether that person holds on to that anger or whether they choose to forgive you, that is up to them. That's their decision. But for us as believers, we know that God's command of us is clear. Ephesians 4, do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's okay to be angry for, 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 for a minute. Ephesians 4 says, be angry but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. Some of us might need to get on the phone this afternoon, this Independence Day. You might need to be freed from your anger you've been holding on to against a family member for far too long. Number four, boasting will divide a family. Verse five we hear, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams than for his words. And he dreamed another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? What's the answer? Yes, they will. 
For those who have read and know this story, chapter 42, Joseph will find himself in charge of all of Egypt's food supply during a region-wide famine, and his family will come down and bow to him. This dream is indeed from God, but here's the point. Does that mean that Joseph had to share it with everyone? Like, hey, did you guys know you're going to be serving me one day? I don't think that Joseph was innocently looking for you know, help interpreting the dream. Remember, God gave Joseph the ability supernaturally to interpret dreams. We're going to see that in chapters 40 and 41. No, I think he's just bragging here. I think he's rubbing it in, the fact that not only is Joseph favored by Jacob, his father, his earthly father, but he's also favored and been chosen specially by God, by his heavenly father. And he's rubbing it in. But Ephesians 2 reminds us that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Joseph didn't do anything to be chosen by God for God's own purposes any more than you or I did anything to be chosen by God to be saved in Christ. It was his free gift to us based solely on what was done for you on the cross by Jesus. So all boasting is excluded. God declares in Jeremiah 9, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. We boast in Jesus and in Christ alone. Beyond that, practically speaking, talking about family unity, no one likes a boaster, a braggart, do they? Does anyone like being around the family member who is so insecure that they feel the need to constantly remind you of how great you're supposed to think they are. Don't be that person. And don't allow that person to cause division in your family. Number five, jealousy ruins families. Verse 11, we hear in Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. Favoritism leads to hatred, leads to jealousy. Envy, unhealthy sibling rivalry. How many of us have dealt with jealousy in our family relationships? And yet, how often does it end well? Does it lead to anything fruitful at all? Jealousy is a cancer. Proverbs 27.4 states, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can even stand before jealousy? It's like jealousy is the worst of them all. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, James 3.16, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Jealousy is like a, a gateway to all kinds of wickedness, vile practices. By contrast, love, 1 Corinthians 13.4, love does not envy or boast. 
And Jesus calls us, regardless of parental favoritism, regardless of who makes more money, of who has the, the, the nicer or the nicer looking spouse, regardless of who has the more exceptional kids, more obedient kids, regardless of who has the better friends and social uh, uh, circle, who has more faith. I mean, you can be jealous about all sorts of unholy things and all sorts of wicked, vile ways. Christ calls us not to covet, but to be content. Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, in the abundance of his parental favor, in the abundance of his family, the abundance of his friendships. No, your life consists in the abundance of your relationship with the Lord. Seek first his kingdom and all these things and more will be added unto you. Don't be envious. Be grateful for the undeserved gifts that God has blessed you with and rejoice for the gifts that he's given others as well even those who you struggle to love. Number six, insensitivity will destroy family relationships. Insensitivity. Verse 12, Now Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. Now, by this point, Israel should have known, he should have been aware of the toxicity that existed in his son's relationships. You can't have 10 children who all hate the same sibling for years and years without at least picking up on a few hints of it. Unless you are either totally an absent father or you are completely uncaring. Like maybe Jacob is either utterly aloof, he's emotionally unavailable, to his family, or he is fully aware of the family dynamic here, and he still decides to designate Joseph as his older brother's overseer, the one he's going to send out to report back to him on his brother's work. Again, he's going to give Joseph yet another opportunity to tattle on them and be even more hated by them. Either way, Jacob is not at all sensitive here to the relationships between his sons to seek their love for and their peace with one another. It's more bad parenting from him. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So to the extent that we are able, we ought to be sensitive to family dynamics in our families, not only in our direct relationships, my own relationship with my wife, my kids, my, my mom, my father, my grand, grandparents, in-laws, but also the indirect relationships as well. All of their relationships with one another, right? Families are this interconnected weave, that, uh, web that gets woven. That's why it gets all messy sometimes. But I've got to be sensitive to those other relationships. It's just stupid. It's just insensitive for me to bring up politics at my family's dinner table. Thanksgiving. It's insensitive. It's dumb. Because I know what's going to happen. 
I know that I can handle a conversation on topics I disagree with without losing my cool, but not everyone else in my family can. And so sometimes being a peacemaker means just simply avoiding topics that I know are going to stir up division. Proverbs 29:22 says, "Only a man of wrath stirs up strife." If you're if you're hateful, then you try and stir up conflict and strife. Jacob stirred up strife by his very decision to send Joseph out to look for his brothers. A good father would have known better. He would have been sensitive to the hostility there. He would have proactively tried to address it by now. He's, he should have called a family meeting. Hey, we're going to deal with all this resentment. Get it out in the air and deal with it. Put it to rest. But instead, Jacob allows it to, to, to foster and breed. And number seven, eventually vengeance tears this family apart. Vengeance will utterly tear a family apart. When Joseph's brothers finally get their chance, way out in Dothan, in the sticks, 65 miles north of their home in Hebron, where no one will ever be able to find us out, they take out their years and years of anger and jealousy and resentment on Joseph. We hear in verse 18, they saw him from afar. And before he even came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what has become of his dreams. But when Reuben, it's Jacob's firstborn, heard it, he rescued him, Joseph, out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, don't kill him first, that Reuben might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. You remember Reuben, last week in chapter 35, had already lost favor with his father Jacob for sleeping with his stepmother, Jacob's other wife. And so Reuben thinks maybe he can get back in dad's good graces here by rescuing his favorite son, Joseph. So when Joseph came to his brothers, instead of murdering him, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. They took him, they threw him into a pit and just roughed him up a bit instead. Romans 12 admonishes us, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Vengeance has no place in the Christian life. It's sad to think that even our own family members might be our enemies, and yet it's often those who are closest to us who are the hardest to get along with, isn't it? Who have the greatest potential to hurt us, such that we might be tempted to want to get back at them, to get even with them, to get vengeance. But Jesus commands us to forgive. 
Not seven times, not 70 times, but 70 times, seven times. And if you're keeping track, if you're trying to count all the way up to 490 so that you can finally get your revenge, you've missed the point. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Number eight, greed will destroy a family. Verse 25, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to Judah. Judah will be the main character, focal character, two weeks from now in chapter 38. Fourth of Jacob's sons. Already heard Reuben has fallen out of God's good graces. Simeon and Levi did the whole thing where they had the genocide with the Shechemites. Judah is going to fall two weeks from now. And so uh, Joseph already here, the favorite child, doesn't come out of this story looking very good. It's almost like the Bible is trying to systematically, you know, tell us that none of these characters in Genesis we might otherwise be tempted to look up to and heroize or whatever, put on a pedestal. None of them are, are God's ultimate plan, the person through which he will accomplish redemption. But Judah led his brothers astray. The Midianites traders passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And Judah plays off his scheme here like he's concerned with Joseph's welfare. He says, come on guys. I mean, he is our brother after all. But his actions make it clear here that all he's really concerned with is turning a profit. He's greedy. Greedy enough to sell his own brother into slavery. To make a quick buck. We often, maybe most often, see this side of folks, family members, come out at the end of a common family member's life when there's a will involved. Nothing has the potential to tear a family apart quite like money, does it? The redistribution of a loved one's estate. That's why 1 Timothy 6.10 warns us the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. People do terrible things to one another for money, don't they? So Jesus encourages us not to lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Plus, you don't have to fight over Jesus like you do with money. There's, there's more than enough Jesus to go around to the whole family to share them with the whole family. You don't have to be greedy. You shouldn't be greedy with Jesus. How could we keep something as amazing as grace to ourselves? We're called to not be greedy, to be generous 
to give the gospel away to others who are lost and in desperate need of salvation. Number nine, deception divides families. We read on verse 31, then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify for us whether this is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal must have devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Jacob once again here gets a taste of his own medicine, doesn't he? Laban had tricked him back in chapter 29 with the Leah Rachel thing. And here again, Jacob the deceiver, who tricked his own brother Esau out of his birthright and blessing, Jacob gets himself deceived. His sons, no doubt, learn from the best. Lies will destroy a family. Sometimes we think we're lying to protect the family, protect family unity. You don't want to hurt your parents' feelings, so you tell them you have to work over the holidays, and that's why you can't come home. You don't want to exacerbate the conflict between your siblings. So when your sister vents to you about all the issues she has with your brother, instead of encouraging her to go and talk to him because you're afraid that's just going to make it worse, you triangulate and you lie and you simply agree with her, yeah, yeah, he's the worst. But then when your brother asks if your sister has a problem with him because he's starting to pick up on this weird vibe from him instead of encouraging him to just go ask her, deal with the issue, you lie again, you further triangulate, you just reply, hmm, I don't don't think so. That's probably just in your mind. I wouldn't worry about it. Listen, that's not being a peacemaker. That's being a liar. And it will ultimately not help keep the peace in your family because you can only sweep so much dirt under the rug before it builds up and hits the fan. For all the deception and the deflection and the attempts to distract and dodge the issues inevitably come crashing back down on you and the rest of the family. Let me ask you this. If your family doesn't love one another enough to be able to face the truth, the sometimes difficult truth, and share it with one another, and, and continue to care for one another, to go on fighting for real, honest relationship with one another. If your family can't handle the truth, then is it even a family unity that's worth protecting? Some parents try and hide their sin, their marital struggles, their infidelity from their kids well into adulthood. I'm certainly not advocating for airing all of your dirty laundry into your five-year-old. But if your kids aren't allowed to see that you're a sinner, how are you ever going to share the gospel with them? What were you saved from? If dad's perfect. Don't lie and pretend that you're a better parent, better person than you are. You need God's grace every bit as much as your kids do. They need to know that. Finally, number 10, despair can tear a family apart. Despair. Verse 34, then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. 
This one is a little trickier than the others because grieving is not a sin. In fact, we're called to mourn with those who mourn. But despair is different. God says there's a season for everything, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. Despair is when you get stuck in the same season. Sad season. Despair is defined as a total loss of hope. Friends, because of what Jesus has done for us, not only on the cross, but in his empty tomb, it can never be said of believers that we suffer from a total loss of hope. Because brothers and sisters, we have a hope that transcends the very worst of this life's circumstances. We have a hope that transcends even the grave. Paul says we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed. God, I don't understand why you are letting this happen to me, but we are not driven to despair. But God, I am still going to trust you through the storm. I'm going to look to you as my hope when all of life feels otherwise hopeless. Despair destroys families. It's hard to believe that any family could survive, any marriage could survive something as tragic as the loss of a child. I don't know, many of yours have survived by God's grace. What a testimony to his faithfulness in your life, in the life of your marriage, your family. But with God, we know despair does not get the final word. Because sin does not get the final word. Despair, deception, greed, vengeance, jealousy, boasting, anger, slander, the worst of our sin against family or otherwise, the worst of our sin, ultimately, the Bible says all of it is committed not just against family, but most grievously against God himself. And if God counted our sins against us, none of us could stand before him. And yet, in Christ Jesus, God forgives our sins, punishing our sins on his cross so he can pour out his love that only Jesus deserved on unworthy sinners like us instead. That's the gospel. And that means that now the cross has the final word. The empty tomb has the final word. Our sin no longer defines us. We have a new identity. Speaking of family, we are now adopted brothers and sisters of the risen King Jesus. He has redeemed us. That's the final word for this morning. He has taken what was meant for evil and he has transformed it as only he can and used it for our good. And we're going to see God do that powerfully in the life of Joseph in the weeks to come, the chapters to come. But we get a little glimpse of it here. At the very end, we've had nothing but, but dysfunction for 35 verses, and all the way at the end, verse 36, lest we lose all hope and despair, we hear 
Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Just a glimpse, a foreshadowing of redemption to come. Moses, it's like Moses is assuring us, look, this is not the end of Joseph's story. To be continued. And so, I want to encourage you, brother, sister, this morning, if you are still wading your way right now through brokenness this morning, if your family is still reeling from dysfunction this morning, take heart. That just means that God is not done with you yet. Amen? Let's pray.